Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Statements like this are not new. Nuclear weapons, threats of annihilation, and volatile leaders. Kim Jong-un might be on the brink of a war. They demonstrated the ability that they could reach the continental United States. For decades, North Korea has threatened the West and its allies with total annihilation. But on January 15th of 2024, Supreme Leader Kim Jong-un announced something very new. He proposed changing the Constitution to make it clear. South Korea is its principal enemy, and there is no hope for reunification. And with that, he changed the course of the war that has never officially ended on the Korean Peninsula. Two of the most respected North Korea experts in the field, Robert Carlin and Siegfried Hecker, recently published an essay on the 38 North website, bluntly stating that Kim Jong-un has made a strategic decision to go to war. Kim himself said he has no intention of avoiding it, and that begs the question. What happens if we do see a provocation of, of a different scale? How are the United States and the international community going to respond to that? To find out more, I sat down with former CIA analyst and North Korea expert Sue Kim. I'm Brian Wood, here to talk about Asia. Okay, so I want to start with the most dramatic question and just get right into it. Is North Korea prepared for war and what would that look like? So what stemmed this question and and all this interest as to whether or not, one, North Korea is really preparing for war, and two, whether the region is going to be prepared for it, is a commentary piece that was written by Bob Carlin and Siegfried Hecker on that very question, uh, because the situation on the Korean Peninsula was, the tensions aside, the, the preparation that Kim was undergoing or he had been undergoing as a North Korean leader uh, since assuming the leadership uh, more than 10, 11 years ago, um, has, has been all about nuclearization. And then the question about whether or not he is prepared for war, I think what exacerbated it is, is actually Kim recently uh, at a Supreme People's Assembly meeting called for the removal of references to unification with South Korea, completely abolishing it, He also called this unification arch um, that was created by his predecessors as an eyesore, 
calling South Korea the principal enemy. So, of course, you see a nuclear-armed, emboldened, extremely confident North Korean leader who was not bent, or, or as he has really caved in, to the idea of a nuclear deal. Of course, that's gonna be, there's going to be questions about that. What are the implications for South-North relations in terms of reunification efforts? When you look at the way the two Koreas had been looking at unification, I think we sort of just accepted reunification as as the, the ultimate goal. But practically speaking, when you ask South Korean citizens whether or not they want unification, you're going to get a mixed result, right? On the one hand, you do want to see this ideal unified one Korea. But on the other hand, uh, the two Koreas have been so far divided economically, politically, ideologically, and socially that to be able to bridge that chasm over the, the seven decade separation is, is, you know, very idealistic and it's going to take a lot of resources. It's going to take a lot of patience to, to achieve it. So Kim proposed these constitutional changes at a parliamentary meeting on January 15th. Why now? Now, because of the nuclear weapons, he has reached a point where he feels comfortable. He's at a position where he's amassed enough capabilities. He's also conditioned the United States, the region, and the world to accepting and to living with a nuclear-armed North Korea that, again, you know, one missile test is really not going to shake a lot of interest now. If you look also at inter-Korean relations... Uh, right now, the South Korean presidency or the South Korean administration is not interested in engagement in a nuclear agreement with North Korea. We need to speed up Korea, U.S., Japan, trilateral security cooperation to counter increasing North Korean nuclear threat. So... The, the prospects for Kim Jong-un to, quote-unquote, engage with, a South, with the South Korean administration now under Yoon Song-yeol, it's remotely different from the, the situation that Kim was in when uh, Moon Jae-in was in president. The other optics, of course, is the 2024 elections in, in the United States. What is the significance of that election? You know, there's talks about who, like, which administration Kim Jong-un might be facing. And, and questions about whether or not we were going to see a Trump 2.0. If we see a 2.0, a Trump 2.0, it could actually open up greater opportunities for Kim Jong-un to essentially pick up negotiations with the United States over its nuclear weapons program. In the meantime, I have a very good relationship with him. Different kind of a guy, but he probably thinks the same thing about me. We have a different kind of a relationship. We have a very good relationship, and there's no war. Kim, he has over the past several years actually amassed greater and, and more, more potent nuclear weapons and, and ballistic missile capabilities to a point where now, one, we've been conditioned to the testing. So we see it in the news. We make statements. We, we try to you know, condemn the North Koreans for conducting the tests. The United States strongly condemns this irresponsible act, which violates numerous unanimous United Nations Security Council mandates. The DPRK is urged to immediately cease actions that violate UN Security Council resolutions, escalate military tensions, destabilize the region, and endanger the peace and security of innocent people. Uh, we consider this. Behavior. But really, what actual punishments, right? And and like, how much has this been costly to Kim Jong Un? And he hasn't really felt that pinch. So if we're looking at 2024 November, 
Kim facing a, you know, potentially a Trump administration, there's an opportunity for Kim Jong-un to negotiate directly with Trump, perhaps think about a scenario where, you know, either during campaign season or after the elections, North Korea decides to threaten the continental United States with their nuclear weapons. Would a U.S. presidential candidate, what would the platform say about North Korea? And then a U.S. president, what would he promise his, his, uh, his constituents? Would they be willing to risk San Francisco, New York, to come to the defense of South Korea? So there's questions about, you know, what the U.S. president would, would prioritize, whether that would be his homeland or his or alliances. And unfortunately for South Korea, this doesn't bode too well. And Kim Jong-un knows this, but he also realizes that if there is a Trump 2.0 administration, this is also his, his second best chance at, 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 at clinching another deal, not just for nuclearization, but for something bigger, of course, which is he breaks the ties with South Korea. He's armed with nuclear weapons. So he can consume, for lack of a better expression, he can consume South Korea and overpower South Korea with his nuclear weapons. I think there's very clear motivations for Kim Jong-un to have one, made the statement about unification, but also, two, over the years, just amassing his nuclear weapons potency and just biding his time for that right opportunity to, to do exactly what he did recently. So you mentioned the changes that are proposed. So to codify, you know, South Korea as its primary enemy. Just to simplify for our listeners, how exactly is it codified? So references to peaceful unification in the Korean Peninsula as the ultimate goal. It served under Kim Il-sung, Kim Jong-il, and up until Kim Jong-un decided to change it, it served as the ultimate goal for North Korea. What I would like to point out is that this unification, if it happened under North Korea terms, we would not be seeing a one Korea unified under a democratic South Korean system. There were talks about a unified Korea with two separate systems, a North and a South. But think about this. You're, you have a nuclear-armed North Korea. On the southern side, you have a, a democratic South Korean country. No nuclear weapons, democracy. Uh, there's freedom of expression. And when the two countries come together... One country is obviously going to prevail because of their possession of nuclear weapons. So this idea of a unified Korea under North Korean terms would not have been a great picture for the South Koreans. Why Kim Jong-un decided to take that reference out? If you think about the way that North Korea wanted to unify, it would not have been a peaceful coexistence to begin with. So by obliterating and, and deleting all references to unification. Um, there's also been tightening restrictions on North Koreans watching and consuming South Korean popular culture. He wants to shut it down completely. And he also realizes that he can come back to South Korea anytime because there's a greater, I would say, greater desire on the part of the South Korean government, the society, to push for unification, to advocate for it versus North Korea. So he knows that depending on whichever administration is in South Korea, if it happens to be a pro-North, pro-engagement administration, it does not matter whether or not he has taken references to uh, unification out of the Constitution. 
there would still be an appetite for it. And he cleverly knows this. Okay, it it feels like Pyongyang is consistently posturing, often to the point that the U.S., the South Koreans, they feel unthreatened. In reference to the Bob Carlin opinion, do you agree with him? Is now any different? Should people be worried? You know, I think as long as Kim Jong-un has the weapons, he has no desire to denuclearize. His only desire, actually, is to increase the potency of his nuclear weapons program, Tensions have always been kind of looming and brimming in the region. What changes that and what kind of shifts the dial a little bit is is the administration changes in South Korea, the politics, right, and and the alignment of, of policies between the United States and South Korea. But all the while, and, and this is a point that um, Carlin and Hecker were making, was that North Korea has a long-term strategy, And Kim, his father, his grandfather have been marching diligently towards that goal. Whether or not there's a change in administration, their stance towards the United States and South Korea and the rest of the world haven't really changed. It's just the perspective, I think, and and the political angle that we are looking at North Korea and trying to achieve some kind of outcome with the whole question about nuclear weapons and also how to deal with the Kim regime. So... The question about whether or not we are actually heading towards war with North Korea, that's that's Kim's calculus, of course, right? So we don't know when and how that's going to happen. Do other wars around the world play a role in Kim's calculus? Kim has been observing two conflicts, one in Eastern Europe and one in the Middle East, where he's observed, one, that it, it actually helps to have nuclear weapons, right? And two, that it takes the basically the entire international community to be able to maintain some notion of stability in those parts of the world. What happens if he might not be aiming for a fallout war, but what happens if we do see a provocation of, of a different scale? How are the United States and the international community going to respond to that? And, you know, pre-COVID, pre-pandemic, uh, pre-2024, the question might have been more hypothetical, of course, right? But Kim has observed. He's taken some notes. He's also learned that it helps to have nuclear weapons. And he's also found opportunities during these conflicts to be able to test his weapons uh, without much of a consequence. He's also bartering deals with, with the Russians. And that helps, of course, in terms of um, obtaining technology getting assistance, but also kind of thumbing their nose at the United States, showing that there there is cooperation going on between two countries that the United States is actually trying to, you know, deter. You asked the question, and let me turn it back at you, is if active war were to break out, who would step in for what side? What would this war look like? If we're looking at war right now in the region— And we've also got the Russia-Ukraine conflict, the Israel-Hamas situation still unfolding, and we have a crisis on the Korean Peninsula. We would probably see the U.S. alliance coming into action and response, given the ongoing and, and I would say, also um, improving relations um, between the United States, South Korea, Japan, the trilateral partnership, President Biden hosted a historic trilateral summit at Camp David. He met with the leaders of Japan and South Korea as the three agreed to strengthen their alliances. The world will be safer as we stand together. That would also be of assistance and and, and utility to South Korea. And we clearly know where Russia and also China stand. Uh, There's also the international community, but 
again, I think the question, I, and I think this is, this may not be the right appropriate word, but it's like the affordability of war right now. Can we afford another war in a, it's another contested region. We're not just talking about North Korea, but we're talking about China, right? We're also talking about Russia. So can the United States, the international community afford another war? And how are we going to see the dispersal of resources and, I guess, the attempt to bring divided opinions to a point where you can actually try to contain the conflict? Yeah, this one seems the most consequential, really. I mean, I think in terms of bringing active war, we don't see U.S. troops on the ground in Gaza. We don't see U.S. troops on the ground in Ukraine other than, you know, volunteers. Do you think this one would look different or would it continue to be some kind of proxy war through South Korea, through Japan and their active military? Well, I think the situation here is is a little bit different um, because we we do have the presence of U.S. troops right on the Korean Peninsula. So I think there would be real questions about the reliability of the alliance from South Koreans, right? And also maybe from the Japanese as well saying, well, this is actually happening on the ground and we have troops. Why are we not using it? So I think it would not be in the United States interest to serve this as a proxy war. Now, I think what might happen is the United States in full recognition and you know experience witness testimony to how difficult it is to be involved in two very intense conflicts might seek to temper Kim Jong-un, right? If he were to say, make warnings, to issue warnings to say, by the way, you know, something is coming. And he might do that to see that as an opportunity to say, the United States knows that three conflicts spread around the world is probably not the best for the United States and the international community. And by just pressing a button of provocation, we could see some kind of low-level intensity conflict between the two Koreas, right? And we're not talking about using of, uh, you know, full use of nuclear weapons, but something to trigger that question in the United States to say, the best interest for us, for the region, for South Korea is to avert war. But what is averting war? What is the cost of that, right? And it, it, we're, not, we're not pushing for war. But by saying and giving Kim the option to say, you know, let's kind of put that on pause or let's, let's reconsider, there will be, I think, incentives, right? And I think what Kim is probably looking at is that big incentive of, of getting that acceptance as a nuclear weapon state. And of course, now that he's kind of officially cut ties with South Korea, it will be much easier for him also to act freely. He's essentially had to just get rid of his training wheels that he's had by piggybacking off of his grandfather and his father's policies towards the South Koreans. But again, going back to how easy and I think how dispensable Kim views the South, even if that reference to unification is removed, they demolish the arch. If Kim extends an olive branch during, let's say, a a more pro-engagement administration, what are the odds that they might be willing to consider? Uh, One, of course, because they also do not want tensions, but, you know, in the name of peace, in the name of, you know, peaceful coexistence with the North Koreans, that could also be an option, right? Does Kim face any vulnerabilities? Looking at Kim Jong-un, and, you know, we talked about why he chose to make this announcement on this particular day. Why now? Why the first month of the year? 
I think more fundamentally, too, we should also be looking at Kim's maturity or his, his growth as, as a leader of North Korea. He was young. He had no leadership experience. But to see, um, and I think we're painting this in very nice terms, to see how much he's grown as a leader and, you know, the amount of not respect, but the amount of recognition that he's getting and he's on essentially equal footing. The fact that he was able to meet with Trump on two, possibly three, if you can count the surprise meeting. President Trump and North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un walked toward each other from opposite sides of the joint security area in the DMZ. Then a handshake before the president's single footstep made him the first sitting U.S. president to enter North Korea. On three occasions, right, shows one that he is being taken seriously because of the weapons, of course, but also he is he's a tough negotiator. Right. And, and you know, if, if there wasn't that, uh, where would we be or where would Kim be? Right. So the growing confidence, I think, is pretty remarkable. I think his efforts to try to shed the shadows of his predecessors has also been noticeable. One weakness, I think, that we should be continuing to observe is, is how much trepidation Kim feels towards the North Korean population. And of course, their curiosity and their interest in, in learning about South Korea. The fact that he's shutting down all avenues and, and punishing North Koreans for consuming South Korean pop culture, I think shows that he is insecure still and that there is potentially uh, some weaknesses internally that we should also be looking at when, you know, in the broader context of, of trying to deal with North Korea. The weapons, of course, are extremely important, but how do we assess Kim as a leader, as a negotiator, but as a person too? And what are his vulnerabilities and the dynamics with his family, um, his sister, his daughter, potentially his other children? And I think you know, understanding decision-making is also very, very important in understanding why he's doing certain things and, and how he chooses to step into the international playing field to, to get what he wants. If and when war breaks out on the Korean peninsula remains uncertain, but Sue says it lies in the hands of Kim Jong-un. I'm Brian Wood. Thanks for listening.